Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. And oh, 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 today we're going to a bad place. The worst, really. The book that contains much to admire, but that is, overall, totally in-fucking-tolerable. I understand that there is no rational way to compare reading a book to facing execution by lethal injection, but why be rational? Every time I had to open this book, I felt a little bit of myself was being killed. And if I think of all the hours it took to read this goddamn tombstone of a novel, it was more than a little bit of me that was subject to lethal treatment. The title of this fucking book? Demons previously known as The Possessed. The author, Fyodor Dostoevsky. Maybe you've heard of him? The publication date, 1872. And the date of the translation by Pavirin Volokonsky? Well, who gives a shit, really? Let's just fire this bad boy up and get the troika rolling. Regular listeners to the podcast will recall a few episodes back when we talked about Tolstoy's short story, The Devil. Back then, I alluded to the fact that I had spent over a decade away from Russian literature, in large part, though hardly uniquely, on the strength of my god-awful experience with the so-called classic, The Brothers Karamazov. Karamazov. Whatever. Not one of those brothers did I care for, and altogether, that eight million page slog sounded the death knell of my experiences with the great Russian novels of the 19th century not written by Nikolai Gogol. And then, just like the pulp song, something changed. A beautiful cover, yes, I can be like that. A pair of translators, Pavir and Volokonsky, getting more love than a Bible-quoting cult leader, and I'm hooked. I went back to Tolstoy and discovered, to my amazement, that reading the death of Ivan Ilyich is not like eating dusty papyrus. It's more like duck à l'orange, as they say in Texas. And so too is every other one of Tolstoy's long, short stories. All duck. So I started thinking, all right, it's time to go deeper. Actually, fuck it. It's time to go all in. I'm seeing the pulchritudinous vintage covers of Dostoevsky designed by the brilliant Peter Mendelssohn, and I'm asking myself, which 700-page behemoth's belly do I want to enter? Answer, Demons. I'd heard about this book, Demons, Dostoevsky's true masterpiece, or The First Dostoevsky You Need to Read, or The Funny Dostoevsky. And seeing as I was wiping the slate clean, consigning those previous experiences with Dostoevsky to a life before this born-again self, I decided to reboot it with demons. As for the novel, it starts on not the wrong foot. The first hundred pages are not gripping any vital organs, telling me I must know what's next, or wow, I can't believe it's not better, but neither were those same organs atrophying from a lack of intellectual stimulation. There's solid material here, and it is funny. In fact, the first hundred pages are essentially comedic. It's the story of a platonic love affair between patron and in-house scholar. By platonic, I mean it is a love affair that peers past the bodies and into the soul, and not into the soul as it actually exists for either of these characters, but the soul as it is ideally imagined by each. The patron is Varvara Petrovna. Varvara Petrovna. Right, that's what I said. She's the wife of a general cut down in Sebastopol, which seems to have been the fate of many of the absent men in this book. After the general's death, The wife inherits his enormous estate in the center of town, and this gives her license, at least in her own mind, to govern this town with a sense of noblesse oblige. 
and the one who is most cozily benefiting from her outdated notions of patronage is Stepan Trofimovich. Stepan Trofimovich. Again, that's what I said. Stepan is something between Varvara Petrovna's tutor, her in-house scholar, and the local genius. Or, I should say, genius in his own mind. To give you a sense of the flavor of Stepan Trofimovich's thoughts, I refer to a description of a poem he wrote while still young and living in St. Petersburg. It is some sort of allegory, in lyrical dramatic form, resembling the second part of Faust. The scene opens with a chorus of women, then a chorus of men, then of some powers, and it all ends with a chorus of souls that have not lived yet, but would very much like to live a little. All these choruses sing about something very indefinite, mostly about somebody's curse, but with a tinge of higher humor. Then suddenly the scene changes and some sort of festival of life begins, in which even insects sing, a turtle appears with some sort of sacramental Latin words, and, if I remember, a mineral, that is an altogether inanimate object, also gets to sing about something. Generally, everyone sings incessantly, and if they speak, they squabble somehow indefinitely, but again, with a tinge of higher meaning. Finally, the scene changes again, and a wild place appears, where a civilized young man wanders among the rocks, picking and sucking at some wild herbs, and when a fairy asks him why he is sucking these herbs, he responds that he feels an overabundance of life in himself, is seeking oblivion, and finds it in the juice of these herbs, but that his greatest desire is to lose his reason as quickly as possible, a perhaps superfluous desire. Suddenly, a youth of indescribable beauty rides in on a black horse. And I'll stop right there if you don't mind. The meandering self-seriousness of the poem is a good analog for the tutor himself, and one reason, one of the many reasons, why he can sometimes get on the nerves of a generally right-thinking person like Varvara Petrovna. Thing is, she does keep him around, and some part of her does, despite everything, love him. And the feeling is returned more fulsomely by Stepan Trofimovich, who sends his patron love letters nearly every day, some of them running to 20 pages and consisting of nothing but outpourings of the most tender-hearted love for his absent friend, and were literally wet with the tears of separation. And yet, she does read them. In the opening hundred pages of Demons, the reader is generally occupied with how the pair tries to rid themselves of one another, but somehow can't. As Varvara Petrovna does not say to Stepan Trofimovich, but silently indicates throughout, You have no idea how bad it gets! I wish I knew how to quit you. This back and forth goes on for a while. In between, the reader does receive news from the continent, mostly Germany and Switzerland, where Varvara Petrovna's son and Stepan Trofimovich's son are living and stirring up trouble. But when the story's not following the platonic love affair that isn't, its focus is on the circle of local thinkers that surround, or perhaps exceed, Stepan Trofimovich. It's hard to know where he stands, whether he's the leading light of this circle or the dirt on its heel, because the novel is narrated by an admirer, perhaps the last admirer, of Stepan Trofimovich. What the reader knows for sure is that the circle of thinkers is composed of the so-called liberal avant-garde of the town, who are little more than borderline useless no-goodniks. So in this circle there's Shatov, Virginsky, Liputin, Lyamshin, Lebyadkin, Shatov, Virginsky, Liputin, Lyamshin, Lebyadkin. And if all of these names are starting to roll into one, welcome to my world. As readers of Russian novels will know, there are names and patronymics, which usually go together, 
like Stepan Trofimovich. And then there are last names, which bear no relation to the previously described names, meaning everyone in this book goes by at least two completely unrelated names. And that's when they're not being referred to by their short form nicknames, which is not at all hard to follow. While the narrator never wastes the chance to gently poke fun at Stepan Trofimovich, usually by way of juxtaposing his lofty self-expression and the reality that he is in his own devastatingly whispered words, merely a sponger, the narrator is far nastier when it comes to describing the scrubs who make up the membership of the local avant-garde. Labyadkin was some sort of transient, later turned out to be a rather suspicious character, and was even not a retired captain at all, as he'd styled himself. Virginsky was... A pathetic and extremely quiet young man, already about 30, poor, married, and in the civil service. And lastly, there's Lamshin, who is always described as... A little Jew. Which is one of the lowest things you can be in a Dostoevsky novel, in many novels of the 19th century. This motley gang sits around in Stepan Trofimovich's salon, sponsored by Varvara Petrovna, discussing the latest ideas, which, we are made to understand, are already passé and arguing about world historical events as if their discussions might have some effects on the outcomes. They call the stuff of their debates ideas, but it is clear to the reader that these men are empty bladders, bagpipes that have mercifully run out of air. It's possible, if not likely, that for all their verve, they only gather at Stepan Trofimovich's for the free champagne. At the same time, while they are undoubtedly sour, the group is essentially harmless, and left to themselves, they would go on as they always have, spouting mild quantities of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. What happens in the novel, though, is that at a certain point, this pool of vinegar receives two large doses of baking soda. The sons of Stepan Trofimovich and Varvara Petrovna come back from abroad. These two new characters would be Pyotr Stefanovich and Nikolai Vsvit... Can I get some help here? Sievolodich. Right. From now on, I'm just going to call him by his first and last name, Nikolai Stavrogin. So, to be clear, Pyotr Stepanovich and Nikolai Stavrogin are not children that Stepan Trofimovich and Varvara Petrovna had as a couple. They are children by separate partners, but as the older generation is close, so too is the younger. These two, Nikolai Stavrogin and Pyotr Stepanovich, whose idiopathically pretentious father insists on calling Pierre, are trouble from the minute they enter the scene. Stavrogin, for one, carries a reputation for slapping rivals and starting duels, although that description would only make him sound capricious. In fact, there's a seemingly depthless well of cruelty to this man that is made clear almost immediately upon introduction, when he casts his avaricious eyes on a young and beautiful but engaged Lizaveta Nikolaeva. And this is despite the fact that Stavrogin himself is already married. When we add to this material from the chapter that was censored from the original publication of the novel due to obscenity, but is included as an appendix in this version, we find a picture of a person, Nikolai Stavrogin, who is not merely a lech, but also a pedophile. To the narrator's mind, Nikolai Stavrogin's remorselessness is born of his posturing as an atheist. No God, no worries, as Dostoevsky's narrator saw it. Get yours while you're in this world. Whereas the reader finds him or herself at home in the comforts of the opening chapters of this book, the introduction of the younger generation makes the reader forever after uncomfortable. While Pyotr and Nikolai set about co-opting the no-goodniks that once gathered at Stepan Trofimovich's, they also bring in a series of new, more zealous characters. Kirillov, the apocalyptic author. Fetka, the convict who kills for kopecks. 
That's not a bad tagline. And Shigalov, the self-proclaimed prophet of revolt, who is described by the narrator as follows. Never in my life have I seen a more grim, gloomy, glowering face on a man. He looked as if he were expecting the destruction of the world, and not just sometime, according to the prophecies which might not be fulfilled, but quite definitely, roundabout morning, the day after tomorrow, at 10.25 sharp. In that description, you can still hear Dostoevsky, through his narrator, mocking the pretensions of his conspiratorial characters, but in a different way than he handled the troublemakers of the older generation. Those old farts were all talk. This new cast wants action, and when it comes, it won't be benign. One of the dominant interpretations of demons is that, like seemingly every Dostoevsky novel, it's about a struggle to fathom the effects of God and religion, a clash between faith and non-faith. And sure, it could be seen that way. To me, however, the book was animated by a question of belief, not faith. Belief is a product of reason. Faith requires no such basis. And if this book is about belief, it is more specifically about belief in a revolutionary future. It asks, are you viva the revolution with all its violence and chaos, or contra? As the plot progresses, we see the characters falling to one side of this question or the other, as well as some characters, namely the cunning Pyotr Stepanovich, who straddle the line, letting their charges twist like fish dangling from a hook while they try to figure out how it will all end. The power of this book comes from Dostoevsky's often terrifying descriptions of the plotting that goes into revolution. In this regard, I would say he is prophetic, but it's possible the machinations that exploded in 1917 were already being honed in the 1860s while this book was being written. I don't know. What is certain is that this novel is at its finest when it explores and explodes the false philosophy, psychological manipulation, and vanity that feeds into the revolutionary will. Much of this is illustrated in the many scenes where the younger generation openly disregard their elders, and one of the clearest examples of this is in how Pyotr Stepanovich treats the political chief of the village, Andrei Antonovich, and his wife, Yulia Mikhailovna. First, Pyotr zeroes in on them. They have power, and he can manipulate it. Pyotr approaches the situation using a divide-and-conquer strategy. He charms the wife, building up her already substantial self-regard, while openly insulting and defying the husband. The offended husband complains bitterly to his wife about the rude young man, but the charmed wife dismisses her husband because she wants to keep that charming young man around. It's clear from the first that Piotr's aim is to make fools of both, and though he takes his time bringing each party under his control, he doesn't skimp when it comes to delivering the coup de grace. Here is Dostoevsky beautifully summarizing the situation and describing the consequences. The thing was that from the very first step, Piotr Stepanovich showed a decided disrespect for Andrei Antonovich and assumed some strange rights over him, and Yulia Mikhailovna, always so jealous of her husband's significance, simply refused to notice it. At least she attached no importance to it. The young man became her favorite, ate, drank, and all but slept in the house. Andrei Antonovich set about defending himself, calling him young man in public, patted him patronizingly on the shoulder, but made no impression. Pyotr Stepanovich went on laughing in his face, as it were, even while apparently talking seriously, and said the most unexpected things to him in public. Once, on returning home, he found the young man in his study, asleep on the sofa, uninvited. The latter explained that he had stopped by and, finding no one home, had 
caught himself a good nap. Andrei Antonovich was defended and again complained to his wife. Laughing at his irritability, she remarked caustically that it was he who seemed unable to put himself on a real footing. At least with her, this boy never allowed himself any familiarity, and in all events, he was naive and fresh, though outside the bounds of society. Andrei Antonovich pouted. On that occasion, she got them to make peace. Pyotr Stepanovich did not really apologize, but got off with some coarse joke, which in other circumstances would have been taken as a new insult, but in the present case was taken as repentance. This is the viciousness of Pyotr Stepanovich in concentrated form, and it's also Dostoevsky at his best, showing how the young casually twist the knife into the old, just as the old, either through weakness or infatuation with this new wave, helplessly watch the blade turn inside them. So far, so good, right? The person listening to this review is asking, what's the problem here? What was all that bitching and moaning about? So, how to put this? Hmm. Let's start with, Dostoevsky does not know how to plot a book. He doesn't know when something, a list of names, a string of jokes, another plot twist, is too much. He doesn't know when to stop using ellipses in his dialogue. He doesn't know just to stop using fucking ellipses. He doesn't know that just because the town of N is in a frenzy doesn't mean that the report from the town of N needs to be written in frenzied language. It's all too much. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of this book, the reader is in a car that's going 120 miles per hour down a highway full of potholes big enough to swallow 18-wheelers. And between falling into these potholes and swerving violently to avoid them, you get your head repeatedly smashed on the dashboard and lose your guts out the window. That's the experience of reading demons. And every so often, when you regain a moment of consciousness, you look over to the driver's side to try to whisper, slow down, please, or let's pull into the rest stop for a donut. But where there's supposed to be a driver, what you instead see, to your horror, is that there's no one actually at the wheel of the truck. That's right, for the long stretches of this book, the driver has left the vehicle. So what this means is that, in this novel, when someone gets conked on the head or falls into the street, the next thing you know, they're dead. A magnificent public scandal occurs, and the next thing you know, everyone's cozy around the samovar. Cause and effect aren't distant relations in this novel, they're absolute strangers. And over the course of several hundred thousand million pages, having your mind juggling various tangents, every one of which is screaming for your full attention, becomes too much. And perhaps like other born-agains, I can only surmise, you wake up from this sweat-filled reverie with the realization that there's something familiar in all this. The crazy people talking over each other with half-filled sentences. The soaring insights that compete for eloquence but add little to our understanding of the characters and their motivations. The Christianity that is crammed into any and every corner, further obscuring your way. Hey, it's just like that other Dostoevsky novel, The Brothers Fucking Karamazov. Karamazov. And you come to conclude, I cannot tolerate another work by Dostoevsky. For all the good that is part of this novel, and there is so much of it, Demons is emphatically not a good novel. It is a philosophy, a tract, an essay, a sketchbook, a dramatized work of sociology or theology, but none of this makes it any good as a novel. And when you place him next to Tolstoy, well, Tolstoy creates worlds that are full to bursting. If he were a sculptor, he'd be Mayol. Big, juicy plots. Dostoevsky, on the other hand, makes late Giacometti's, stickmen, all jagged angles, none of the richness. Dostoevsky writes with the urgency of a prophet, which he has the right to do. But prophets are lonely people, 
largely because those around them just want them to shut up. It's not much of an admission to say I was relieved when the manic joy ride that was this novel finally, ineluctably, hit the brick wall that was its last page. Yes, it sent me through the windshield, but at least I had gotten out. That concludes this ride on the Russian steppe, which may be my last trip to that part of the world for a good long while. My thanks to you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of David Orrell's non-fiction look at aesthetics and science, entitled Truth or Beauty. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, spell the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice, at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Anna Pasakas for the pronunciation. To Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So, let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. Okay, I don't even know what this word is. Pujit? I've never heard of that before. What the hell is that? A Pujit? It's a Peugeot. And as always, go Jays.